0: Welcome to Tom Bradford's Torah Class, an in-depth Old Testament Bible study that's brought to you from a Hebrew roots perspective. This week's lesson is week number six, the book of Amos, chapters two and three. Well, after spending the last two lessons in, in Amos addressing the mysterious and fascinating matter of the Nephilim, giants, fallen angels, and the like, And that apparently the Amorites that Amos spoke of in chapter 2 verse 9 were led by, perhaps even consisted largely of, these hybrid divine human creatures that Jehovah wanted destroyed. So now we're going to move on to complete chapter 2 and then begin chapter 3. Let's begin by rereading part of Amos chapter 2. Open your Bibles to Amos chapter 2 and follow along with me, please. We're going to start at verse 10. Amos chapter 2, starting at verse 10. More than that, I brought you up from Egypt, led you 40 years in the desert so that you could have the Amorites, that's the Amorites, land. I raised up some of your sons to be prophets other young men of yours to be Nazarim, that's Nazarites, people of Israel. Isn't that true, Hesad and I? But you gave the Nazarites wine to drink. You ordered the prophets, don't prophesy, enough! I will make all this crush you, just as a cart overloaded with grain crushes what's under it. Even the swift won't be able to flee, the strong won't be able to use their strength, the warriors won't save themselves. Archers won't be able to stand. The fastest runners won't save themselves. Those on horses won't save themselves. On that day, even the bravest warriors will throw off their weapons and flee. Now, throughout the many hundreds of Torah class lessons, we've often discussed the all-important matter of our identity. That is, who do we say we are? With whom or what do we identify, as that essentially defines us as an individual or as a corporate body. And In verse 10, God says that Israel is who they are. They are a separately identified people group based on two main factors. His deliverance of Israel from their helpless oppression and captivity in Egypt, and also according to the homeland he had given to them. A homeland that was being taken away from the Canaanites due to their wickedness and given instead to Israel. Now, within the context of what we've learned over the past two lessons, within the context of the previous verse that spoke of the destruction of the Amorites, then we see that in God's economy, the Amorites and the Israelites represent the two extremes of a spectrum of mankind. At one end are the people who should never have been in existence in the first place the Amorites, who are identified with the wicked Nephilim, versus the people that God separated out from all other humans on the planet to be a nation of priests that were meant to identify with Him. And further, in one way of looking at it, a goal of the Exodus from Egypt was that God's people should repossess a land on His behalf, a land that had become overrun and occupied partly by illicit and wicked half-human creatures represented by the Amorites, with the remainder of the Canaanites being heavily influenced by their presence. This probably truly bothers the minds of most modern Christians as talk of quasi-humans quasi human creatures smacks of fairy tales and legends but this issue this issue between the amorites and the israelites brings us to an unavoidable unavoidable conclusion if we take the bible for what it says and we don't attempt to spin it to allegorize it into something more palatable for the western mind now, this intent of God to destroy the Amorites and then to give their land to the Israelites was one of great mercy and blessing towards the Hebrews. Yet another act of Jehovah's mercy and blessings is mentioned in verse 11. It is that God didn't just deliver and then deposit Israel into their promised land and then leave them to their own fate and destiny. Rather, God set up a continuous chain of care for them, of communication with them by means of his appointed prophets and Nazarites, we're told. Now, Moses was Israel's first prophet since becoming, since they had become an identifiable nation of people, and Amos was only its latest. There were many prophets, such as Samuel, and Elijah, and Jonah, in between. Now, we should take note that what is only lightly implied elsewhere in the Holy Scriptures that God gave the Nazarites to Israel out of His favor and mercy is here made concrete. See, by means of their strict dedication to God and to the rituals and the lifestyles He ordained for them, The Nazarites were meant to exemplify those who do God's will on earth, despite their imperfections. Now, although the many Nazarites over the centuries each seemed to abide largely within the boundaries that were set down by a short slate of rules, they didn't all behave the same. Samson, for instance, focused on the instruction for Nazarites not to have his hair cut. Samuel focused on not drinking wine. One has to wonder why, in this chapter of Amos, prophets and Nazarites are highlighted as opposed to prophets and priests as a connected pair. Since Nazarites seem to be but rather small role players that emerge from time to time in in, in Israel's history and little else, while priests have been central to Israel's faith practices since Mount Sinai. I can only speculate that perhaps the current state of the priesthood in both Jerusalem and in Samaria was so diminished by Amos' time. And that prophets and priests were at that time regularly opposed to one another, that the mention of a now-corrupted priesthood was avoided. Now, there's something else about verses 10 and 11 to be considered and, and spiced with a bit of introspection. Essentially, what we are reading about is Israel's redemption history, their salvation history. And yet, because Israel strayed so far away from that redemption history that revolved around God's grace, it has now devolved into their judgment history revolving around God's wrath. This is a caution for all who claim to worship Messiah Yeshua and Jehovah, God of Israel. See, there is a more than implied church doctrine in several large Christian denominations of once saved, always saved. That is, because of our redemption history based on God's grace, regardless of our bad behavior, or how seriously we may even abandon our faith, our trust in, our obedience to God, that history of our salvation is safely tucked away. Just like an insurance policy. And we don't ever have to be concerned with an adverse judgment against us on the day of judgment. Now, to that, my response is no, Jesus did not change the pattern that we're reading about in Amos. No, Yeshua did not abolish his father's criteria for blessing and for curse just as Israel and Judah were on the cusp of having their salvation history reversed and turned into a punitive judgment against them for their blatant rebellion and disobedience, so are all believers in all eras subject to the same. That includes you. includes me. Everyone else who has... Or ever been born on this planet. Now, verse 3 condemns the people of Israel for intentionally corrupting the Nazarites. And whether or not some Israelites virtually forced the Nazarites to break their Nazarite vows by making them drink wine is unknown. At the least, Those Nazarites who stuck to their vows were marginalized and shunned by the community, putting them into untenable situations. No one wants to be ignored by our own community. And humans, being what we are, sometimes we react or behave in ways that we otherwise would not in order not to be ostracized or maybe even harmed. As for prophets being prohibited from prophesying, from delivering God's message, we do find such occasions in the Bible. In 1 Kings 13, we read of Jeroboam arresting a prophet for prophesying. In 1 Kings 18, during the time of Queen Jezebel, we read of a couple of hundred of God's prophets having to go into hiding to keep from being arrested or killed. In Isaiah 30 we read, starting in verse 9, For this is a rebellious people, they are lying children, children who refuse to hear the Torah of Adonai. They say to the seers, Do not see. To those who have visions, do not tell us the visions you have, as they really are, but flatter us, fabricate illusions. Get out of the way, leave the path, rid us of the Holy One of Israel. Today, even in supposed enlightened and free Western nascent nations such as Canada, pastors are restricted by government law what they can preach from the pulpit, especially as concerns God's biblical morality code on sexuality. Those who defy those laws can and do get arrested. They get jailed. Sometimes their churches are literally confiscated and shut down. The biblical pattern of God's prophets being shut down in silence continues and only gets more restrictive year after year. So in verse 13, God announces he's through with waiting patiently for Israel to reform their rebellious behavior. And now he's going to exact a severe punishment upon them all for the transgressions that he's listed. Now the agricultural metaphor of this happening is of an overloaded cart that gets bogged down, unable to move. The overloaded cart. Is meant to represent the incredible abundance that Ephraim Israel has been enjoying for some time as a result of God's blessing. Now, ironically, it is a result of this amazing abundance that Israel has become arrogant and thus ripe for judgment. This translates to the idea that Israel will have no ability. To run away to safety once the military invasion against them begins. Instead, they will be frozen in fear at that moment of attack. Well, the final three verses of chapter two offer various examples of the helplessness of the entire Israelite population, even including their army, before the overwhelming forces of an invader. So, these verses deal with what Israel has designed to protect themselves against such an event, their army. But God says it will quickly wither under the coming assault. Now, recall that the invasion being envisioned is future to when Amos is prophesying. Now, If years in advance, you heard that your city would be invaded by an enemy, if you heard that police protection would not and could not stop it, that the loss and occupation of your city was inevitable, no matter what, what would you do? What would you do? Common sense says... You'd prepare by leaving well in advance of this uncertain but entirely unstoppable event. But you'd only do it if you actually believed it. If you weren't sure, if you were skeptical, you'd likely stay and kind of wait to see what happens. Assuming you could escape at some point closer to when the prophesied event actually occurs thereby maintaining the comforts and the familiarity of your life as it is thus the notion is and this is as with the prophet hosea that god is issuing a warning through his prophets to prepare thus giving you time to prepare The preparation clearly, in this case, amounts to leaving the land at a time which can be done in an orderly and planned way. Because once the first signs of the invading army appear, it's too late. Now once again, I'm asking you to pay attention to the signs of the times. God, through His prophets, has warned us that as the end gets very near, scarcities and depravities and dangers of every kind will emerge in our current situation in the early part of the 21st century when these exact things are happening not just here worldwide preparing by running away probably isn't the best course of action because likely there's no place to run to Rather, preparing our pantries, preparing our lives for a more self-sustaining lifestyle that takes into account the suddenness of emergencies, that probably makes more sense. Now, for the moment, there's still time for us to go about it in an orderly fashion. But the overnight onslaught of the COVID pandemic, and our government and societal reaction to it, show us how once a crisis emerges, it's too late to prepare. My advice is, act now, but don't overreact. Don't overreact. Prepare practically, not hysterically. This is what God did for Israel, and He's doing it for us who trust in Him. Practical preparation is sensible, it's sustainable, it's godly. Hysterical preparation, or no preparation at all, is not. Well, verses 14-16 through 16 say that the Fastest runners in Israel's army won't be able to outrun the enemy's onslaught. The strongest among their many warriors will be outmatched. Their archers will not even be able to stand and shoot their arrows because the enemy is advancing so rapidly and even those soldiers on war chariots won't be able to flee ahead of the invaders. The bravest few among Israel's large army will simply throw down their weapons and run and hide in order to try and save themselves. Bottom line, Israel has no hope of surviving what is about to happen to them in the near term. No hope. God has ordained their destruction and their deportation so no army can prevent what is soon to come because it is His will that it happen. Okay, let's move on to Amos chapter 3. Open your Bibles to Amos chapter 3. We're going to read the whole chapter. Amos chapter 3. Amos chapter 3 starting at verse 1. Listen to this word which Adonai and I has spoken against you people of Israel against the entire family that I brought up from the land of Egypt. Of all the families on earth only you have I intimately known. This is why I will punish you for all your crimes. Do two people travel together without having so agreed? Does a lion roar in the forest when it has no prey? Does a young lion growl in his lair if he has caught nothing? Does a bird get caught in a trap on the ground if it hasn't been baited? Does a trap spring up from the ground when it has taken nothing? When the shofar is blown in the city, don't the people tremble? Can disaster befall a city without Adonai's having done it? Adonai, God, does nothing without revealing His plan to His servants, the prophets. The lion has roared. Who will not fear? Adonai, God has spoken. Who will not prophesy? Proclaim it on the palaces in Ashdod, on the palaces in the land of Egypt, and say, Assemble yourselves on the hills of Shomron, Samaria. See what great tumult is seething within it, how much oppression is being done there they don't know how to do right, says Adonai. They store up violence and robbery in their palaces. Therefore, here's what Adonai Elohim says, an enemy will surround the land, he will strip you of your strength, he will plunder your palaces. This is what Adonai says, as a shepherd rescues from the mouth of a lion a couple of leg bones or a piece of an ear. So the people of Israel and Shomron will be rescued, huddled under cushions in the corners of their beds. Hear and testify against the, against, the Yaakov, against the house of Jacob, against the house of Jacob, says Adonai Elohim Elohe Sebaot. For when I punish Israel's crimes, I will also punish the altars of El. The horns of the altar will be cut off, and they will fall to the ground. I will tear down winter houses as well as summer houses. Houses adorned with ivory will be destroyed. The mansions will be no more," says Adonai. Now although the opening word of verse 1 is translated in the complete Jewish Bible as listen. It is not a strong enough English term for what is meant. The better word is hear. In Hebrew, the word is Shema. Hearing without necessarily doing describes the modern sense of the word listen, but it is far from the meaning of the Shema that always includes an action. Doing in response to what you have heard. Now this frequent word formula to open a, a thought in the Bible expressed then the idea to pay careful attention because something of utmost importance is about to be said. And it needs to be heeded. Continuing with the understanding that God has already made it clear that he will not be recanting or postponing these judgments, what is it that Israel is to do after they've heard? They must do the only things that can be done at this point. First, repent and change one's worship and lifestyle practices, even though this will not avert the judgmental punishment that's coming. Second, prepare for the inevitable consequences now that you know they're coming. So the unspoken thought is prepare. I mean, there's just no getting away from this strong underlying theme in Amos. We also find that even though most Bibles say it was the Lord that Israel is to heed, The Hebrew actually uses God's formal name, Yudhevav, Yehovah. In Amos' era, and most eras, right through the New Testament, Lord is but the English translation for a rather generic Canaanite term, Baal. So just as for pagans, If told the Lord commands something of them, the question then is, which Baal? Which Lord? Then for multiple God-worshipping Israel, the question would naturally have been, which Lord, if the generic Hebrew word for Lord had been used, but it wasn't used. So in this verse, we don't find Lord, we find Jehovah, not Lord. That makes it clear which Lord is commanding them. Now, once again, the matter of Israel's historical identity is front and center. Israel is the people who God brought up from Egypt. And what follows, however, is not just meant for Ephraim Israel, the ten tribes of the northern kingdom, but also for all Israel, Judah and Ephraim Israel combined, because the words are directed to the entire family, meaning Jacob's family, all the tribes which God brought up out of Egypt. So this leads us to verse 2 which affirms Israel's unique position before Jehovah. He makes it clear that he had a choice of families on earth. But he chose Jacob's family to bless as his elect. They are the only nation so chosen. And it is because of this privilege, this great honor, that they must bear now this severe judgment. The clear pattern of reasoning goes something like this, first, Israel, through an actual covenant with God, is uniquely bound to God and to all the terms of that covenant. Second, because every legitimate covenant consists in of terms of the agreement, then since God inherently will never go back on His word, it's up to Israel to bear the responsibility to do their part. And their part is to obey the terms of the agreement. Third, since the covenant was between Israel and Jehovah, then it's gonna be Jehovah and no other party, no other God that will punish Israel, the covenant breaker, for all of their sins. And let us always remember, sin is defined throughout the Bible. Old Testament New Testament as one thing alone, breaking a law contained in the covenant of Moses. That is a sin. Now, what follows is a series of seven rhetorical questions that are put before Israel. That is, as rhetorical it means that the answer to each question is, in this case, A presumed no. could be presumed yes in some cases. In this case, it's always a presumed no. The idea is to get across a most basic message of fact to God's people. Nothing is an accident. Nothing. There is a cause behind everything that happens. Even if we cannot quite discern what the effect of it might have been. The first rhetorical question is, do two people traveling together share food? That's what's really meant by this. Do two people traveling together share food if they've never met before? The presumed answer is no, they wouldn't. Second, does a lion roar? When he's not hunting, but rather he's asleep or at his leisure. Again, no. The third asks if a young lion growls in his lair if he has caught nothing to eat. Answer, no. The lion, and next to the young lion, sees this is a common literary pairing in the Hebrew language. And so, other than for the difference in the stage of development of the two lions, the difference between them doesn't matter. It just makes the metaphor more impactful and complete the fourth rhetorical question it asks if a bird would become caught in a snare if there was no bait in the trap to draw in this unsuspecting creature the answer continues to be no the fifth question asks if a typical trap used to catch a wild animal has been sprung does it mean that nothing is caught in it? It caught nothing? Again, the answer is no. The sixth question is, if, if a ram's horn is heard in the town, will not the townspeople be startled? See, the ram's horn this year was used like an alarm, an air raid siren. So, if one hears a ram's horn in a town, This means a battle with an enemy is underway. Something that is sure to cause a chill to run down one's spine. The seventh question is where the real point of impact of the previous six questions happens. If a town suffers disaster, is it not obvious that God has caused it? Now while many in in Israel might have answered, yes to this question if it was a question about pagan towns in general since the context is about what's going to happen to an israelite town then such a premise that god would be behind the destruction wasn't something they could easily accept i mean after all it's one thing for god to cause disaster on a gentile town But it's quite another for him to cause disaster to befall a town of his own people. I mean, the Israelites' knee-jerk response to such a question would normally have been no. Because God was supposed to protect their towns, not supposed to call an enemy to attack them and then stand aside so the town can be obliterated. The point being made here that was designed to send an unwelcome chill down every Israelite's spine, was that what they had assumed had always been so, wasn't. Yehovah will bring disaster upon his own people as a punishment. That ought to sober us up a little bit. There's an underlying and often implied understanding within much of the christian world that god would never punish those who trust in his son so no matter how much they deserve it how much we deserve it he would never do it here it's made clear through amos that under the right circumstances extreme circumstances and with sufficient rebellion and disobedience on our part jehovah certainly reserves the right To severely punish his own, and the proof of it is (laughs) he's done it before in the past. It's not conjecture. Therefore, one ought not to be so smug or complacent about our redemption. Nor should one take his or her salvation as an automatic, guaranteed right of protection. Against God's destructive discipline for our faithlessness. Well, a summation of what verses three to six explained to the people of Israel is made in verse seven. And it goes something like this kind of paraphrasing it Hey, Israel, you really think, you really think that just because you're my people, that you're immune? For my punishment for all your wrongdoing against me? And further, you know, since God always warns his people in advance through his prophets, should you not listen when I, Amos, speak to you God's oracle of judgment and the cause for it? Amos, with that last remark, is essentially validating his own credentials as God's harbinger of the catastrophe that is guaranteed befall Israel and soon so verse 8 now emphasizes that the warning Amos is giving it's a done deal and is it's a fact it's written in stone it's not merely a possibility the fear of lions in those days was enormous as it ought to have been no explanation to anyone alive in that era was necessary. A few verses earlier, two lion questions were asked based on well known standard lion behavior. A lion does not roar when he is yet to acquire his prey, but he does growl in his lair once he's captured that prey and in the process of devouring it. Thus says Amos. God, as this metaphorical lion, has growled. And from the standpoint of heaven, the prey has already been captured. It's about to be devoured. That prey is Israel. All I can say is yikes. And further, Any true prophet of God cannot possibly ignore the voice of God any more than he can ignore the roar of a lion. And Amos was not about to suffer in order to learn this lesson as his predecessor Jonah had to. Now, here's the thing, and I especially would like for all who identify themselves as a modern prophet, I know some of you are out there, I want you to... To consider this, a true prophet acts under divine compulsion, not self-will. A true prophet doesn't seek to be a prophet, but rather is called by God to be a prophet, often against his or her own will. A prophet of Jehovah is never wrong if they are actually prophesying what God told them to prophesy. If they are ever wrong, they are false prophets. They are worthy only of death for their wickedness in deceitfully purporting to others that they speak for God, when in fact they are but speaking their own uninspired thoughts. Amos's prophecies, all the biblical prophets' prophecies, have come true. Some are in the process of coming true, and in many cases are but a repeat of what's already happened in the past. Well, Verse 9 begins a new oracle from God, and in a nutshell, this begins a section that extends well into the first several verses of chapter 4. It's a diatribe against the wealthy, against the elite of the northern kingdom of Ephraim Israel, and it begins with God scoffing at the futility of the fortifications that Israel's built for itself. It is for a reason that Ashdod and the fortified cities of Egypt were chosen to be witnesses to the destruction of the capital city of Ephraim Israel, which is Samaria, Shomron. These represent nations who, although they don't know Jehovah as their God, are not aware, but should be, that His laws and commands apply to them, just as they do to all the tribes of Israel. This is what was plainly revealed, by the way, in the verses prior to where we are now, when the judgment of six pagan nations is announced. Do not let it go unnoticed. That in God's laws, two witnesses are to be brought forth to give eyewitness accounts concerning a criminal allegation. Thus, Ashdod and Egypt are those two witnesses. And they're to bear testimony against the crimes of the accused northern kingdom of Israel. The tone and the context is, ironically enough, that Ashdod and Egypt are expert witnesses. Why are they expert? (laughs) Because for centuries they've been doing what Israel's now being accused of. They know what it looks like. These nations produced terror upon their own citizens, ruled much territory outside their own nation in brutality. And although it would be Assyria, that God uses to invade Israel. They are of the same ilk as Ashdod in Egypt. Now, for those of you who are among the more nuanced Bible students, I'll mention that only in the oldest Hebrew text that we have do we find the word Ashdod. The Greek instead says Egypt and Assyria, as does the Masoretic Hebrew text from the 10th century. Now, without doubt. This is because it turned out to be Assyria, not Ashdod, that attacked Israel. But on the other hand, neither did Egypt get involved in the assault. So whoever the Bible editor was in the distant past who made these assumptions shouldn't have. Ashdod and Egypt are representative of Israel's ancient and nearly continual foes, and this applied to Amos's day as well. These two witnesses are summoned to the hills surrounding Samaria only in order to get a panoramic view of what's going to happen to that fortress city. To be clear, they have not been invited to come as invaders. Naturally, this invitation is not meant for the common citizens of each place, but rather to the government leaders, the wealthy and the elite because they are just like the leaders and wealthy elite of Israel. The tumult spoken of within the city of Samaria is connected to the oppression of the people by the leaders and by the aristocrats. That is, the poor that make up the bulk of ancient societies were being used as cheap labor so that the elite could increase their fortunes. Well, Verse 10 says something that is a common theme in Amos and is found in Hosea. It is that Israel isn't even capable any longer of doing what's right. So, instead, they sow violence and robbery in their palaces. Why can they no longer do right? Because they no longer have a moral compass. They abandoned their divine moral compass, the law of Moses, in favor of the doctrines of their leaders, who, like false prophets, proclaim to speak for God, but they don't. And Hosea, in his prophecy, addressed this head on. In Hosea 4.6 we read, My people are destroyed for want of knowledge, because you rejected knowledge, I will also reject you as priest for me. Because you forgot the Torah of your God, I will also forget your children." Because you forgot the Torah of your God. There it is. When a worshipper of God God abandons his moral code, the Law of Moses, he abandons knowledge. And when we abandon heavenly knowledge, we, of course, substitute it with man-made knowledge. Therefore when we don't know God's Torah, we have lost the capability to do what's right, even though we think otherwise. We think we got this. Neither Ashdod nor Egypt knew God's Torah, so the result was their violence, robbery, social injustice, moral degradation, Israel had become no different than Ashdod in Egypt. The leaders of these two nations had become so accustomed to oppressing the poor in order to line their pockets, it just seemed normal and right to them. They believed they were entitled to take advantage of the helpless. Amos, God's appointed enforcer of his Torah, was calling the leaders of Ephraim Israel onto the carpet for daring to adopt pagan standards of leadership and calling it godly. It bears repeating. The Canaanite and virtually all other pagan religions of the era placed no demands on their worshippers to be ethical or moral. None at all. The gods of these religions allowed all indulgences into personal pleasures and gain. All they cared about was for themselves to be cared for. Therefore the incredible if not obscene wealth of the elite and powerful of Ashdod, Egypt and now Israel are of themselves proof of their godlessness and depravity. And by the way, biblically speaking, while wealth is of itself not proof of godlessness. such wealth, when hoarded, when it's not used for the good of others, good as defined by Yehovah, is. So we are not to take this diatribe as just being against wealth or all wealthy, in all cases, but rather as a proverb. That operates as a general rule of thumb. Now, the consequences of Israel's rebuff of their moral comp- compass, their disobedience to God's laws, is stated in verse 11. An enemy is soon going to invade Ephraim Israel, strip it of all of its accumulated wealth that is stored up in the palaces of the rich. In other words, all the work and the oppression of the people to enrich the elites will soon be for naught. It will be confiscated by an enemy nation. It is important to regularly remind ourselves, all of us, that what God is inflicting as a curse is precisely what the covenant of Moses says will happen to Israel for the type of wrongdoing that is happening. Most of Deuteronomy 28 deals with this, but I'm going to draw just a few verses to highlight it. Deuteronomy 28, verses 49 to 53. Yes, I will bring against you a nation from far away that will swoop down on you from the ends of the earth like a vulture, a nation whose language you don't understand, a nation grim in appearance, whose people neither respect the old or pity the young. They will devour the offspring of your livestock, the produce of your soil, until you have been destroyed. They will leave you without grain, wine, olive oil, or your young cattle and sheep until that has caused you to perish. They will besiege all your towns until your high, fortified walls, (laughs) in which you trusted, collapse everywhere in your land, which Adonai your God gave to you. Then, because of the severity of the siege and distress, that your enemies are inflicting on you, you will eat the offspring of your own body. You will eat the flesh of your own sons and daughters, whom Adonai your God has given to you." Is this not precisely what we're reading about here in Amos? It is, and it's precisely what DID happen to Ephraim Israel, and then a little more in a century later it also happened to Judah. And believers, especially believers in America and in other Western-oriented nations, this is going to happen to us as well. It's going to happen. Well, when exactly, I cannot know, so I can't tell you. But my instinct is, it's pretty near. And for the same reasons. I'm going to pontificate for just a moment, so I just ask you to indulge me. You know, it's always fallen to God's people, including those Gentiles who have accepted Christ to be the advocates of God's morality and His ethics. And this especially applies to our leadership who speak in Bema and Pulpit. Now sadly, ever since the 4th century AD, when the Roman church that is the forefather of modern Christianity systematically Replaced God's Torah with church doctrines formulated by church councils, we have, just like Israel, moved farther and farther and farther away from divine truth. And we now operate so much on human rules and traditions. Even so, the core of God's moral code was sufficiently ingrained in our faith such that good men of God would preach the truth to their congregations so as to greatly affect the moral condition of our societies, generally for the good. But, like the infamous frog in the kettle, a point of inflection has been reached in the last half century or so, the results of which can only be one thing a nearly complete abandonment of God's morality code in favor of a fluid and ever-changing morality. Or I prefer to think of it as a new amorality. And this reflects the conditioned desires of our societies. So morality in its absolute nature, sin, its absolute nature are less spoken of in our churches and synagogues, and rather are left up to the whims of individuals who follow and prefer the trends of our modern world. We are the new Ephraim Israel. And just like with Ephraim Israel, it is not that every last individual or every last corporate group of the faithful are the same. However, it has become, in my observation, that the preponderance has abandoned God's moral code, and we need to pay attention. We need to repent. We need to resume our purpose as God's elect to proclaim to one and all, and to live it out inside of all, the moral code. That he has given us, that's embodied by the Torah. Well, the God is a lion metaphor continues in verses twelve and thirteen. Also continues with the subject of an enemy plundering the riches of the wealthy of Ephraim Israel. Now, remembering that Amos was a sheep breeder, a sheep breeder, he had no doubt lost a few sheep to lions and had viewed the remains. The idea is that only the scantest remnant of the dead animal remains when a lion is through with it, as represented by just the leg bones and a piece of an ear that we read about. God says, so it shall be for the people and especially for the wealthy of Israel. Only a remnant shall remain And even then, probably not fully intact. It speaks of the people of Israel huddled under their beds. Well, that is, these are those who did not prepare because they did not believe the words of God's prophets that were sent with this divine warning. Or perhaps they thought themselves above it, immune. Now understand that while in modern times beds are located in bedrooms and used for nighttime when sleeping, that was not the case in the ancient times. Beds uh, referred to the soft cushions where the more well-to-do could assume a reclining position as they ate meals around a table and, and as they socialized and they partied. This would not have been the experience of the common people who slept mostly on mats laid out on dirt floors of their meager homes. Well, we're going to pause here for today and conclude chapter three and get well into chapter four next time.